central to decolonial thinking is the conflation of coloniality and modernity as a matrix of power. Coloniality slash modernity are pur purposefully paired as the concepts that inhabit two sides of the same coin and continue to influence our present-day lives. The beginning of modernity is connected to 1492 and Columbus' so-called discovery of the Americas, a time when Europe started to see itself as Europe and a Western civilization deeply interconnected with the violence of colonialism was being developed. Coloniality slash modernity means that racism, colonialism, and the consumption of lives are not aberrations of, but constitutive to modernity. There is no progress without violence and no development without poverty. Within this constellation, Europe produces and needs an authority, Europe versus the other, in order to reaffirm itself and claim a superior position. This constellation of coloniality slash modernity works on a material slash institutional and symbolic level. A system of appropriation is established through the continued appropriation of land, for example, indigenous people's land, and of bodies, for example, slavery and forced labor, and forced labor including sexual labor. This is accompanied by a system of representation in which ideas about reality, visibility, and world history are reproduced. This system of representation can be found in the museum and the university. They both function as pillars of Western knowledge and subjectivity. Decolonial thinking functions as a critique of the hegemony of Western imperialist thinking and its continuation of our current day institutionalized lives. It proposes epistemic disobedience by denouncing coloniality modern slash modernity, which has informed and organized our lives and by opening up a space of thinking and being that reaches beyond this closed matrix of power. Decoloniality then appears in between modernity slash coloniality as an opening, as a possibility of overcoming their completeness. It means that there is no alternative, it means that there is an alternative to modernity which starts by revealing and showing modernity as a locality, posing as a global design with universal pretenses. How can we move beyond the singular notion of the truth? How can we unveil the erasures and negations that modernity slash coloniality has produced? How can we have other conversations and realities? How can that which is suppressed re-emerge? These are decolonial questions they propose an existence that has a different relationship with time and space, a different temporality from the one that modernity offers. Instead, a decoloniality of aesthetics, knowledge, and being is proposed. And I will keep the microphone. The book situation actually goes now. <laughs> I would like to introduce Nancy Yawe, who is sitting here next to me. She is a cultural historian who is working on the crossroads of transnational movement. And she's also project leader of Mapping Slavery, that we will hear in a bit more about it. And she is taking us today on the post tour. Thanks, Nancy, to be with us. <laughs> okay. uh, hi, everyone. Um, this is so weird. <laughs> First of all, you're all eating. <laughs> And then second of all, um, this is actually 
the first time we're doing a boat tour uh, in, in this way, right? So that's kind of exciting. Um, say hi to our Captain Theo, by the way. It's Captain hi. We're going to do this in 60 minutes, and we have a lot of stuff to, um, you know, cover, basically. Yes. So, and the third thing, which is really weird, is that, uh, that your own words are given back to you through <laughs> speech. Uh, sounds kind of heavy stuff. Um, so I want to break it down a little bit in this tour. And I was asked to sort of talk about both um, institutions and learning, but also um, I'm giving, um, irregularly, I'm giving tours in Utrecht on the history of slavery, so the traces of slavery in this city and how it's localized and in, sort of embodied and grained in, uh, in the buildings and in the history of the city. And um, in that way I hope to also make this notion of um, both, yeah, the matrix power, coloniality, modernity, but also the decolonial option, uh, yeah, I want to give a handsome feet through this tour. And um, since you're all, uh, uh, so, I mean, if you have questions, remarks, or anything, just raise your hand because I uh, hate hearing myself all the time. So um, let's make this um, an interactive conversation of sorts. Uh, but yeah, I know I'm holding the mic. So <laughs> okay, so we're we're um, we're going fast actually at the um, at the single any Utrecht people in the room who's Utrecht based all right Utrecht represents um, uh, Dutch people Dutch people who are like who would consider themselves Dutch okay all right all right um, who um, thinks uh, they, no, that's, uh, not, that, that's a stupid question. Never mind. No, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Well, you what? Yeah, I know. I always say this to my students. No, I want to start talking about uh, what we're doing here. Actually, uh, where we just uh, came at, uh, we, we sort of passed the museum, the Central Museum, Central Museum uh, of Utrecht. And it's uh, it's um, one of our largest museums. It's uh, it has it's a mixture of an art museum, cultural history museum, and um, they had a um, exhibition uh, called Beyond the Dutch ten years ago. And so that that's one of the case studies I'm writing about in my article um, because I think it was one of the first times that they actually engaged in such a um, intense way with colonial history, uh, but this needs to be researched, actually, this uh, thesis of mine right now. But yeah, so they did a, um, a, an exhibition on it, and it was interesting to see, um, A, how the curator that did that, um, uh, uh, did that uh, exhibition really had to uh, defend her choice because of the existing ideas within her team uh, on the notion of Indonesian visual artists, yes or no, being able to produce um, strong qualitative artwork. So, and this is 10 years ago, we're talking 10 years ago. 
And the other thing is that uh, when they did, and they invited all these super exciting uh, artists um, and their work, so dead and alive, so, so to speak, um, when they uh, did that, there was a really interesting array of works. But then again, they did not engage in a conversation about them being an institution. So being, in a way, uh, a material expression um, of coloniality modernity. Because you could say both academia, right, the university, and museums are very strong, uh, strong, yeah, strongholds, you could say, of this, uh, yeah, option of this, this coloniality, this notion of colo coloniality and modernity. So very literally, uh, who uh, is uh, canonized within these notions of modernity and who's excluded, uh, there are very, very clear boundaries. And I think only the last sort of 10 years that has been, um, been criticized more, um, uh, more strongly. Uh, in part by black activists such as um, Simone Seepak here in, in the Netherlands who started this a couple of um, uh, initiatives actually rewrite the institute hashtag rewrite the institute look it up and hashtag decolonize the museum where she started a very critical conversation slash intervention with uh, museums as these um, strongholds of uh, representation of modernity, so to speak. So I'm trying to, in my piece, also to explain in a vignette how even when um, there is this wonderful curator doing great stuff and there's this wonderful visual artist at display in a museum, these uh, spaces can still be very violent contact zones for people like me uh, when I, you know, when I roam through those rooms. So, um, and for um, people within the cultural sector to become aware of that takes a long, long, long time, right? So it's a, it's a very difficult, very um, hard notion in a way to cut through. But then again, we're talking about five centuries of uh, thinking, right? And also the material conditions surrounding that, um, which is colonialism, right? Okay, so... Um, see where we are now. Yeah, so we're actually... Oh, okay. So that's one thing that I wanted to share with you, uh, which um, is really related to um, um, my piece in the book. Um, but I'm also, um, and Annette already uh, told you, uh, project leader of a research project called Mapping Slavery, where we, uh, as a team, actually try to really um, uh, describe literally uh, what locations in Netherlands are there and how they are connected to a Dutch history of slavery. And um, so in a way, we really feel that it is important to make that history tangible, because up till the year 2000, one can say that in the Netherlands we were taught that slavery was an American problem and not so much a Dutch thing, right? Uh, no, no, yeah, you're laughing, but it's true. Um, this was taught in school, 
we were, and so yes, the educational system again is, you know, um, yeah, material sort of expression of that same um, coloniality, modernity matrix of power, you could say. We want to frame it all in that way. So, you really have to push through that, and a lot of um, um, uh, school teachers actually know very, very little still about this history. So this morning I, I uh, gave a lecture to um, uh, 17, 18 year olds who are still in high school um, and uh, we basically asked them beforehand uh, how they thought about this history and it's interesting to see that some of them have been taught now quite a lot and others not so much at all but all, the, all of them really feel strong about why don't we know something about this and um, up to now in academia, in the Dutch academia, you have um, Dutch history and you have colonial history plus the history of slavery, right? They're not thought out in, in unison. So they're two different things, um, which basically means that slavery uh, history is not seen as Dutch history. Uh, that's a problem. And so this is exactly why we started this Mapping Slavery project, because we really wanted to sh show people that in basically every, every bigger city in the Netherlands, if you start looking for it, and if you start reading the city as an archive, you can find traces everywhere. So that's what we did um, in 2011. Um, so this month, seven years ago, we initiated this, uh, this tour in Utrecht, which we actually usually do as a walking tour. But when Casco told me like, oh, well, there's 60, 70 people coming, I thought, well, let's then take a boat tour instead because <laughs> it'll, it'll be a little bit uh, difficult otherwise. So, but this is the, the, the guide that uh, my colleague, uh, historian <laughs> Esther Captain wrote. And after that, um, we started writing um, guides for Amsterdam. There's now one for Groningen. Um, and we're making a, a national one, uh, and that's coming up the um, uh, beginning of next year. Um, and so we want to show basically how deeply ingrained uh, this system was, as slavery as a system, deeply ingrained in Dutch society. So that's one. And the other thing is that people... Um, as opposed to the U.S., slavery on this soil was forbidden, right? So uh, once people entered the Netherlands who were actually enslaved in the colonies, officially weren't supposed to be enslaved anymore. Now, in practice, that didn't work that way. So people both from um, colonies in Asia, uh, Africa, and the Americas, uh, so the Caribbean, uh, most likely, um, were brought here also because their owners could not, often could not live without them, right? Because they were taking care of their babies or the household or she was too pretty to leave behind, you know, so all these reasons. Um, and so officially coming here, they would become servants, but in practice, uh, not necessarily so, right? And so every city also did that differently. So the, what the judicial position was of those people is also very difficult to really uh, find out. Um, so that's another thing. Um, 
and also really big decisions were made. Uh, so I asked, okay, we didn't have slave markets here. Okay, we didn't have plantations, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But really important political decisions were definitely made here in Utrecht also, but other cities as well. Um, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll come to an example of that uh, in the tour near the end, for the second half at least. And so another institutional system of, of sorts is of course um, the church. And again, the church was a very, very important, um, um, well, you could say an important player in this debate. Now, usually we, um, historians usually say it's only in the end of the 18th century that the Netherlands really started to discuss how, what, how, what they should do with, with this thing called slavery that the debate started. But actually, that's not necessarily true. Already in the 17th century, people were debating if they should engage with slavery, yes or no. And in the beginning of the 17th century, we were not. We, the Dutch, were not. Uh, but then, yeah, business took over. Bus business opportunities, I, I would say, took over. And then the Protestants were like, okay, well, yeah, let's do it anyway. So, but there were preachers, yeah, question or remark? No, a remark. I know that it was Captain. That's a man. Uh, yeah, and he was also a very important in that history, and also that the uh, the Protestant church, the Calvinism, was very important in it. Is that true? Or yeah, just asking. Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly yeah. what, I, what, what I wanted to tell you. Yeah. So in the beginning of the 17th century, uh, it was the case that. Dutch Protestants, and this was a predominant Protestant um, uh, republic, although there were both Catholics and, and, and Protestants here. Uh, and it, supposedly a religious safe haven, right? Hence the word tolerance came into being because of the religious tolerance of the Netherlands, right? Um, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, and so um, um, people in uh, the 1640s, for instance, uh, 1630s and 1640s shifted gear because um, one of our local pirates called Piet Hein had uh, captured the silver fleet which was, you know, a shitload of money basically from the Spanish and then we could conquer Brazil and take over in Brazil or parts of it and then suddenly slavery seems very attractive uh, because, well, one needs cheap labor, right? And so there's this system and why shouldn't we get engaged as well? Because of course, um, it was already the, the Spanish and the Portuguese ha who had started uh, the system in a sense, right? So, um, um, one can say that um, that's also when this debate started to become um, discussed in, uh, on the pulpit. So, there was this preacher called Hondius who lived in the city, the beautiful little city of Horn, uh, which is in the western side in North Holland, and it was a VOC town. So the East India Company uh, had a had a seat there, right? You had the East India Company and the West India Company, and both were engaged in enslavement of people. Now, uh, there was a chapter of the East India Company in Horn, so uh, preacher uh, Hondius 
saw those people in his church every Sunday, and he was basically preaching to them how wrong slavery was. And this was already in the first half of the um, 17th century. At the same time, in Kurforden, which is in the eastern part near the German border, um, there was this um, a, a preacher called, uh, or reverend called, Picard, who actually used the, um, the story from the Bible of the people of Cam to basically say that people, uh, black people were of a lesser kind, so it was okay to enslave them. So, and this is actually, and this is, I think he said that in the 1640s, and um, to, for two centuries, proponents of slavery have used this to defend the choice to enslave. So, again, an institution, in this case a religious institution, that has been deeply, um, um, yeah, has, 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 um, has influenced the debate uh, in a very uh, strong and integral way, right? Um, this is also when we, if you ask me where, where do you get your sources from, well, a lot of times from church uh, sources. So, we've, um, in 2017, we published a book called uh, Dutch New York Histories, where we engaged in the Dutch history of New Amsterdam, right? Yeah, you recognize this? Oh, oh wh why? Uh, we were just talking about, uh, about New Amsterdam. About New exactly, exactly. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. So yes, New Amsterdam, and that was early 17th century. And this is actually also the time where the Dutch brought in enslaved people to North America, right? So the Dutch were among the first to actually do that. And so, um, and usually the enslaved people there worked at farms, farmhands, so there were not these big plantations yet, as we can see later. But both uh, New York was a hub for slavery at a certain point in time. But it was definitely the Dutch who had a really important... So I don't know if, if any of you know Sojourner Truth. Yes. Yeah? Yes. How do you know her? What, what, what about her? What's she famous for? You could call her a feminist avant la lettre, eh? before the word was... Uh, she, she's sort of seen as the foremother of intersectional thinking. Her slogan, Ain't I a Woman, is very famous. She was an abolitionist um, and uh, one, one can say also a feminist. Uh, so she's very, very, very famous, uh, definitely in, in the US, but also anyone doing engaging in gender studies knows Sojourner Truth, right? Well, the first nine years of her life, so she spoke Dutch. Why? Because, um, yeah, she had Dutch owners. So at a, at a certain point, she had to shift to English and was severely beaten by her new owner because she wasn't speaking proper English. Um, anyone heard of Sartje Bartman? South Africa, right? Again, someone who spoke fluently Dutch because Dutch slave owners, again. So yes, the Dutch were everywhere. And if I had a PowerPoint now, I would show basically a world map and show all the Dutch, Dutch where the Dutch were, you know, being active, and then you could see we're talking about at least four continents where they're where, that where they were doing their stuff, so to speak. Okay. So, and uh, let's see where we are now. Ah, the prison. 
the former prison. And if you want to smoke some good stuff, you can buy that here. Also, a little touristic note. Oh, is it is it good? Oh, it's good. It's a customer, regular. It's good stuff, people. All right. Good one. Okay. Um. So yeah. Um. Where were we? Anyway. So. Sorry to bite Exactly. So, um, the church was implicated, politics was implicated, East, uh, the East India Company and the West India Company were two um, uh, organizations, you could say, who organized the whole colonial trade, right? And they did that through uh, shares. So, um, these days, if you're an economics student or whatnot, uh, you're basically being taught that the VOC was the first multinational in the world because of the shares. So um, the stock exchange in Amsterdam is one of the first. Um, so again, this deep connection with capitalism and how it developed and this whole notion of shares, stock exchange, stocks, um, again, was born during this era in colonial uh, in colonial times, right? Okay, um, and we're still in the single, and in a in a bit we will cross and we'll come to the Augracht, where where we will actually have some locations where we can really um, give hands and feet to to this story. So how is it uh, rooted within the city? Yeah. Any questions, remarks, things you want to share? Yes. Can anyone pass it through? Yeah. She asked if uh, slavery was illegal in the Netherlands. Oh yeah. So the question is, it was slavery illegal in the Netherlands? So officially, yes. In practice, not so much. So per city, people were treating that notion differently also, and per era. So people didn't have any uh, law, yeah, proper laws uh, in motion necessarily uh, at the beginning, but at a point, yeah, they started to more and more try and regulate it because they also saw that a lot of people were bringing their um, enslaved servants to the Netherlands. So. But again, I mean, I'm not anyone with a law degree here in the room, or, no, of course not, you're all, <laughs> of course not, of course not, <laughs> we're all in the arts, Jesus. <laughs> but uh, I actually I really love um, uh, working um, interdisciplinary, uh, especially on this theme. Uh, because it's not just historians who are interesting for this, and, um, but also archaeologists, and definitely also law people. Because actually, a lot of um, um, of our sources we not, we get not just from uh, religious sources or uh, books from the church. Uh, why do we know the, Why do we need that? By the way, because people often were being baptized at some point. It was like a rite of passage to become humanized also, by the way, right? But other things, where do uh, enslaved people actually um, come to the surface? A lot of the times, also in police reports, or in um, um, 
birth certificates or acts of death or in um, someone leaving after passing leaving money to their servant because they had served them so well for so long so it's not necessarily the case that they uh, always were immensely treated badly and that's not necessarily what um, also the case but nonetheless their their position uh, was uh, of course very dire and Yes, of course, ships' uh, journals were also very important. And I always, um, um, written sources, um, there you can only track fragments from enslaved people. <laughs> and um, so actually, visual sources are very important for us as well. For instance, Rembrandt, who doesn't know him, um, painted at least 24 paintings with black people in them. Now, why did he do that? Why did he do that? It's not like he was, you know, going on a vacay to Africa now and then. No. Uh, was he using his um, imagination? Maybe, but he's actually known for making portraits of real people, right? That's what Rembrandt is known for. And it's also interesting, again, coloniality, modernity at work. There's 10,000 art historians who are writing about Rembrandt, who have written about Rembrandt. None of them has seriously taken into consideration why black people appear in his paintings, right? Now, we discovered that he was probably actually painting his neighbors. Because already, and that's the other thing that we find really, really, really important uh, to stress, is that the Netherlands wasn't a white space. Uh, there were have always for at least five centuries, if not longer, there have been um, black people, people of color here, both enslaved, but not just, also free people. And so some of them lived near Remont, and this is why he painted them. So this is really, really interesting, and this is how actually the visual archive speaks to us in moments that the written archive is not. See? Then you sort of dive back into that archive, the written archive, to then dive deeper. Okay, so now we know that these people actually were there. Who are they then? Now we've got to dive deeper, right? Okay, so um, that's what we've been doing. And we're almost uh, getting to the start of the Outgracht, right? How, how are we doing? Yeah, about uh, 300 meters. Yeah. 300 meters? 300 meters. Brilliant. Another question, remarks, sharing that you want to do here. Yes, ma'am. Can I ask a question of clarification? Yes, please. Free. Yes. Um, and this was five centuries. I'm having a hard time with the American history, sure. understanding the, Got it. the length of your history. Right. Um, yeah, we're living in different temporalities. Yeah, it's, yes. it's hard. Um, so how, what were the relations between those that were free and those that were enslaved? And was there solidarity in between? Or was that just, was class the distinguished marker rather ah, yeah. than This is markers? a typically American question, I think. No, 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 which doesn't mean that I'm not dissing you at all. But that's your context. That's your context. No, no, so there's a question here about, so what was the relationship between enslaved and free black people? Was there a class distinction going on? Etc. Etc. Now, that's uh, something that we can 
um, research when there's larger groups of them um, at the same time. And that, that's difficult to discern in a Dutch context. We, we basically don't know. But um, yet, though, but in the case of Amsterdam and that community, we now know that at least there were 100, more than 100, uh, or 150, and for you, that's probably a, that's a very low number. For us, it's huge. <laughs> it's huge already. But um, in this group of black people, 17th century, beginning of 17th century, right? So four centuries, five centuries ago. Um, am I counting right? Four centuries ago. So we're talking here about both free and enslaved people. So what we can gather from that probably is that they helped each other. So um, predominantly living in the Jewish Jewish sector of Amsterdam. Here in Utrecht, we're talking about people, individuals living here and there. So to, to speak of a community of sorts is very difficult. And in a way, you can still see that because Utrecht today is still quite a white city. Uh, uh, center, right? Only in the center. Oh, only in the center. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But um, there's not a very large black community living here. Another question. Yes. Can you find traces of blacks that went to schools or universities and got degrees? Can you find traces of black people going to universities, mostly in Leiden? So there's now a um, tip for those of you who are into, well, this is only for Dutch-speaking people though, unfortunately, but there's an open access uh, publication, digital publication of traces of slavery in Leiden. And many, many uh, traces are connected to, um, to, um, uh, to the university, actually, so yeah. Um, actually, I think the first black dean ever was also from the university in Leiden before World War II, um, who was sad yeah, sadly passed away uh, just uh, after the war, during the war. Ah, Theo has to um, show his um, steering abilities right here. Yeah. While we're making a turn to go up to the Augracht. And now it becomes interesting, because here and there, I hope can also stop because uh, we, I want you to uh, have some, you know, look here and there. What's that? Oh, no, sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So, And the word for white and how language is not innocent right um, so um, common reference to black people um, in like let's say the at least 17th 18th century was more right but more more right and in the Netherlands um, it actually has a relatively neutral connotation um, but I was in um, Germany for a workshop week last uh, month in Bremen. Any Germans in the room? Very good. You can explain this better than me, but my German friends explained to me that more in a German context is quite, um, is not neutral at all. It's um, usually uh, meant as quite derogatory. Is that right? 
I'm looking at my German new friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're your. Can't use the word in Germany. But <laughs> since we're not in Germany, um, <laughs> no, no. I mean, really, in the context of the Netherlands, uh, more is is not uh, is not contested at all. It's quite actually a neutral term, which black people also use as a proper historic uh, term, which is which is interesting, right? Because how how do these um, histories then develop uh, per per place? And, on, and of course, the Germans are champions in having to, you know, come to terms with um, these notions of racism. Okay, uh, blah, 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 blah. Wait, where are we? Oh, oh yeah. We've already passed it, but just earlier... Um, at number 18, you could see at the top um, uh, the Moria, uh, which was uh, it's a house already number 18, so it's up there. And that house was um, so Moria, at Oude Gat, number 18, we just passed it. The house was called that way already, so more. Um, and that was already in the end of the 16th century, right? So there's reference to... And so it was really the Spanish word negros which introduced sort of the use of the N-word both in the, in the Netherlands and other places. And this is why that word is very much connected also to enslavement and people of a lesser kind, so to speak, all these notions. So language always has a level of denotation, so a literal meaning and connotation, so what we, um, you know, connect to it as a, as a meaning. So those are two different layers. And so this is why language has now become also so contested when we talk about these histories. And this is very important to uh, remember when we, um, when, when we talk about uh, this. Okay, what are questions or <coughs> remarks or sharing you want to do? So while we passing, also um, we can't see it because um, but there's um, a number 80 right there. There's a gable stone with with a with a boat on and a ship on it called the Spanish Sea. Yet again, a reference to colonial trade. And. Um, And in a minute, we will come at um, at a crossroads of three different stories that I want to tell. Uh, again, one is Oudegracht uh, 115. I'll point it out when we get there. Um, there used to be a, a pub or a cafe called um, the Three More Heads, um, already in the 17th century. So, um, again, this reference to black presence, you could say. And um, beside that, uh, out of that address, and we have to do some uh, steering um, prowess again, but um, uh, in an alley called Three, ha Three Herring Street, Three Haringstad, uh, just in a minute we'll pass it as well, that's the place where Eduard van Akaboa used to live. Now, 
Eduard van Akaboa is uh, one of the earlier um, examples of a black free man living in Utrecht. So Eduard was, uh, came from Angola, was probably enslaved, got his freedom, unfortunately we don't know how or when, and then established, uh, well started uh, a life here in Utrecht as a black free man, and we know of his presence from 1652 onwards. Um, he became uh, a weapons engraver, so he's, he was very good in um, treating metal. And people from the, the area where uh, people from Angola also used to live, um, is, uh, they were known for being really good with metal. And uh, we noticed from um, the uh, Utrecht archive where he was, uh, where his presence uh, becomes known through um, the books of the guy, guy, guilds, the guilds, sorry, the guilds, yes, right. And so um, he got married to a Utrecht woman. Uh, they got children. Their ch and their, their son uh, again uh, got a son. And he did the master test to become a proper member of the guild of um, metal uh, engravers. So that's just one example of um, early black prisons and early free uh, black prisons. Yes. That's a really good question. So the question is, was the only uh, route for black presence through the route of slavery or not? Uh, probably not. Probably there were more routes. Um, and um, this has to do also with earlier black presence when uh, the Moors, uh, you know, uh, took hold of the southern part of Europe. So there was Moorish nobility uh, spread all over Europe. Even, um, um, King Arthur already, uh, you know, the time of King Arthur already refers to black presence. So there was also black nobility in different um, uh, courts in Europe. So this is uh, this is where um, the the three Moorheads pub used to be. This is the street where. Can you stop for a little bit, very slowly, please? And uh, please look up for. House Klein Blankenberg, you see? So you see the alley and then right on the left, you see another house, yes? And that was uh, bought by George Bates for his son Francois, who uh, started living there. It's part of a city castle, you could say. And George Baines was the ultimate uh, VUC bad guy, you could say. He was privately uh, trading enslaved people. Um, in Indonesia and was also trading in opium. We, we talked about drugs earlier. And so um, he got uh, real rich real quick. And so he was able to buy a real nice house for himself on the Nieuwegracht, which we sadly cannot pass today. But his son didn't do bad either with this little thingy called Kleinblankenburg, which is a, yeah, it's a city castle basically. And so now we're moving towards the city hall. 
And the city hall was also a very interesting place. Why? Because in 1713, the Treaty of Utrecht was signed there. Any history buffs in the room? Okay, so what happened in 1713? It was, you could say, UN avant la lettre. Huh? So people were having um, wars all the time in Europe because that was, that was what you did in Europe in those days, right? People got a little bit fed up with it. War also cost a lot of money. So, okay, let's, let's sign a peace treaty again. We were very good in that in, in Europe. Signing peace treaties, again, institutions. Uh, very much. So it's, yeah, it's wrapped in cloth. <laughs> it's not an art piece, it's actually being <laughs> renovated, but that's our city hall. Why was the Treaty of Utrecht where people from 50 states in Europe came together? Why was it held here? Well, one of, first of all, Utrecht was a, a quite an important city, definitely in the Middle Ages. It was an important religious center, more important than Amsterdam. Amsterdam actually became more important only in the 17th century. But second of all, this um, city hall had two uh, entrances that were equal to each other. So two very different entrances. Now, why is that important? Anyone have an idea? This is all the diplomats coming in, right? From all of Europe. All coming in. So the two opposing parties should not have to come in after each other, right? So they had to enter simultaneously. Yes. These are the little things that are hugely important. Now, why? what has it got to do with the history of slavery? A lot. Because one of the really important uh, points of negotiation was the Asiento de Negros. Any Spanish people in the room? See? Do you know what the Asiento de Negros is? No? I understand the words. But yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So how would like, you uh, explain asiento as a word? It's a, it's a sit. It's a sit. It's a chair. It's a, it's a place to sit. It's a, a place to sit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, to uh, asiento. Yeah. Or something like that. Okay, so asiento. Yeah? The way someone speaks? No, asiento. 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 That's it. With a T. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, I know my Spanish is, is crap, obviously. But so. Uh, Asiento de Negros was um, basically um, a thing that was issued by the Spanish king for people to uh, sign into uh, so that uh, they could deliver enslaved people um, to the Spanish king and the Spanish colonies. So it was a very much sought after um, treaty, uh, yeah. Because how do you, would you describe it? But um, so uh, a contract, um, 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 a contract, uh, individual contract that gave you um, basically sole, the sole right to um, um, and tr yeah, trade enslaved people to the king. So it was, if you had that uh, contract, 
then you were really much in luck. And so the WIC had, uh, for a long time, had contracts of the kind, but during the Asento de Negros, um, as one of the uh, things to negotiate on, the English uh, got it. And so um, this is also how England, in a way, it really helped England become a world leader in, in terms of colonialism and slavery in the 18th century. Whereas um, you could say in the 17th century, especially uh, part of the second half, it was the Dutch who were so-called market leaders in trading and slave people, right? So this is important to know. So there was a huge shift in power balance, colonial power balance after 1713, and this was due to the Treaty of Utrecht. How does that play out in the history books? The Dutch usually don't know about the Treaty of Utrecht because they got a bad deal, and the English know a great deal about the Treaty of Utrecht. School kids get it in school because the English got a good deal out of it. This is how it works, people. Okay. Questions, remarks, sharings. How many... Okay, let's test the room. So, how many of you have had um, that you know of um, um, proper education on, on, on slavery in high school? Yeah? One, two? One, two. Really? Come on, no? Okay, tell me, German friend, what you were taught. What do you remember? Oh, you're both. Okay, where did you get your schooling, though? Okay, Rotterdam. Okay. And that's what you remember, because you went to the museum. Also, already in primary school. And then you were lucky. Yeah. And a better person for it, maybe? I don't know. What do you feel? Yeah, you feel like they could have taught us taught you more, right? And I'm kind of guessing you your schooling was American based, so yeah, I did this test one with the American students, uh, asking them how many hours would you say you got in high school relating to um, yeah history of slavery, and if you would ca calculate that. Some of them would say like at least a hundred hours. How would you I, calculate that? And only in high school. Well, it's just family history. Sure. So yeah. How do you know what you know? Right. Well, so it wasn't family. It wasn't Not in school. Necessarily through school. It's through okay. genealogies, family, family, the relationship so, to the land. So through family history, you got to know this. Yeah. Which is another interesting thing, because I've, I've not researched this, but just asked some friends from Surinamese descent here in the Netherlands, like, have, is the story of slavery, has this been passed on through your family? And this is um, Afro-Surinamese people, right, that I'm asking. And a lot of them say, no, we haven't. Um, apparently, for a lot of them, it's also really um, too painful or too intense to talk about. Um, I would add, though, that I've never thought about a European context. That's just not our narrative. It is at all. 
right? The Black Atlantic and never... Exactly. Now there's... There, so I explain, uh, I explain already one big difference between the U.S. context and the Netherlands Dutch context. One is the plantations weren't on Dutch soil proper here, whereas in the U.S. there was the other way around. Now another really big difference is when we talk about Dutch slavery, we're not just talking about the transatlantic slave trade, we're also talking about the Indian Ocean slave trade, which means that South Africa, East Africa, East Asia, sorry, South Asia and Southeast Asia were all implicated. So our first plantation slavery colony or uh, situation, you could say, was not in the Caribbean. It was on the Banda Islands in the Moluccas. So uh, we, what, what, um, Ye Bekun, who doesn't know his name if you're from the Netherlands, but one of the ultimate TOC bad guys, um, or captain of industry, you can choose whatever you want. He was obviously also dis uh, discussed in that way. He ordered basically the, the killing of uh, the, the, large, yeah, the indigenous people of uh, the Banda Islands, then got people from South Asia in to work as enslaved people on the spice plantations. And this is because they also want to monopolize a lot of, um, um, a lot of stuff. Eh? Uh, the trade on enslaved people, the trade on opium, the trade on spices. So the, the VUC is really about monopolizing all these uh, matters. So this is where our first plantation economy with enslaved labor started, 1621 and later on, in Southeast Asia, and only later on in the Dutch Caribbean. And we obviously became known for, especially Suriname, as a plantation economy where hundreds of uh, plantations uh, were installed uh, and where the cruelest, uh, apparently, slave masters ruled as um, story would have it. Uh, this is how we know our plantation economies, but actually it, it started somewhere else. So um, there was four continents implicated in this story, and this is very important to tell because um, that makes it very, very different from the U.S. context also. Another thing, and I'm, then I'll come to you, um, when I, earlier this year, I, I was invited to Tulane Law to speak on these matters and also the notion of reparations was discussed. And so the convener really was flabbergasted about the fact that it also in a, in a, in a, in a Dutch context, people were compensated for the loss of their enslaved people in 1863. He thought it was only happening in the US, but actually um, many, many people in the Netherlands were compensated for the loss of their enslaved after slavery was abolished in 1863, right? We actually made a map, because we love to make maps, we actually made a map of people living in the, uh, the canal area of Amsterdam who were, um, Compensated. Two hands, then one here and then up to you. Is that okay? You had a question? Yeah? Uh, no, I had a remark that remark? With, with the spices, it's even like that, that the local region uh, identities like Friese Nagelkaas, Kruipel, they took in the spices, but they didn't took in the history or 
where they come from, but yeah. it's now uh, in a way also owned as a kind of local uh, indigenous. That is quite, and I do yeah, performances. Kruiden out the paper now. Yeah, uh, this yeah. is all made by which the stuff we eat during Santa Claus season. Yeah. Yeah, when we're right in it. This is all made out of spices of, you know, from there, from over there, right? So we have a, still a saying like a peppered bill, like something, paper dure. Yeah. Um, all these expressions refer to that notion. So in a way, the gold of the 17th century uh, really was the spices. There was a question in the back or a remark. Yes, ma'am. of enslaved people and that the overall sum was about 17 billion pounds of today's value and it's important to um, um, correct it into today's value and oh sorry you are yeah we're, we're nearly here but this is a great way to uh, wrap up this discussion reparations hey um, <laughs> so um, 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 Actually, there's not a lot of people working on this issue in a Dutch context. Uh, Armand Zunder is a Surinamese um, re researcher who has actually has calculated it. He has the numbers, and so there are people who have making um, yeah have done numbers on this. But I would say very uh, similar to uh, the abolitionist movement here and in England. You, in England, you have a really strong um, grassroots reparations movement, whereas here in the Netherlands, um, there isn't one, I would say, not a strong movement. I mean, there's individuals like Beryl Pietman who've been working on this issue for many, many years already. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff we have to handle still. I mean, Black Pete is still there, right? Uh, there's a lot of other stuff that we still need to... Handle. So I think a lot of people are still also very afraid to actually put the reparations issue to the fore in a Dutch context um, because of uh, the repercussions in a way. Whereas if we could look at the, I was part of a research group that uh, looked into the Jewish reparations cases in, in the Netherlands and they were very, very successful in the year 2000. Um, so that's interesting. So there is a benchmark for reparations, not necessarily colonialism. And actually, it was a single man together with a single human rights lawyer who got the Dutch state to, for the first time, to publicly apologize for yeah, colonial atrocities. And that was only like, I don't know, when was that? I don't think it was uh, seven years ago. And I think we're here, so I want to thank you.